This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to talk about the UFC 250 co-main event. And in particular, why isn't there more interest around this incredibly amazing co-main event fight with Cody Garbrandt? and Rafael Sunsell. Plus, we'll talk to economist and writer Paul Gift about some of the measurements he's done around fighter pay, and then we'll dig into the TLTS midweek mailbag as we do every Wednesday. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. And don't forget about that mailbag, Show at gmail.com. So let's get into this. I, I said I wanted to lean into UFC 250. 250 has been dominated in two different ways in terms of its storylines. One, what it might mean for, I think, Sterling and Sanhagen, the bantamweight division, Sean O'Malley, Eddie Wineland kind of a thing. And then the main event itself, Amanda Nunes, Felicia Spencer. And neither of these, uh, either two prongs of uh, potential intrigue are all that big if you're not already a hardcore fight fan. And what I'm about to say is not necessarily... In uh, challenging of that, but I sort of understand, you know, why Sandhagen and Sterling are building their names. They haven't built them yet. Felicia Spencer is building her name. She hasn't built it yet. Certainly Amanda Nunes has done great work in building her name, but um, the matchup, I think, outside of hardcore fans isn't necessarily attracting a ton of attention. And there's another fight on the card that is also not attracting a lot of attention, which is technically actually part of the aforementioned other prong as it relates to bantamweight, namely the co-main event. The co-main event of this card is Cody Garbrandt making his return against Rafael Sunsell. First things first, that fight is sensational. I just like the way they match up. You can favor either guy if you want to. I'm not sure who the odds makers have as their favorite. Let me see. The odds makers have Cody as a very slight favorite, but he is the favorite. Still, uh, I think most would agree a Sun Tzu, a bit of a live dog here in this particular case. So we're going to talk about the matchup itself as a fight later. Can I tell you what I find completely, ba- I won't say completely baffling, but pretty baffling. Why is there no buzz about the return of Cody Garbrandt? Am I the only one who finds this fight fascinating? Cody Garbrandt hasn't won since he defeated Dominic Cruz in what is easily the best performance of his career back in December of 2016. And that was a year, a calendar year, where he went from unranked to champion. And he was actually on this show. We, we were the first show, this is true, to make headlines about that when we said, you know, you could go from X to Y. And people kind of scoffed at it. I think this was even pre, or maybe it was like right after the Thomas Almeida fight, something like that. And people kind of scoffed at it, like, okay, Cody's good, he's on the come up, but, you know, let's be serious about this. And I was like, I don't know, man, this guy is doing pretty amazing things. And I remember when he won, well, I think we did an episode of the MMA Beat at the time, and uh, we were just we were talking about how Zufa must have been thrilled. There's this new guy coming around that people like, marketable, friendly, uh, dynamic fighting style, young, so there's plenty of room to invest in him, you know, in terms of uh, all, all your marketing efforts and there's fights he can have and, you know, beating Dominic Cruz the way he did at that time, 
you were just like, dude, this guy is on top of the world. Who is going to beat him? And then he loses to TJ Dillashaw, although he ably performed in that one. Remember, he dropped TJ in the first round, I believe, I think the end of the first round. Then he lost. Then he lost again. And then he lost a third time to Pedro Munoz. And what you noticed in those losses was that each time he got worse. He looked less and less like the guy who beat Dominic Cruz. And he said to yourself, man, you know this guy. I mean, okay, win or lose, you know, you're not losing to a, 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 some scrub. You're losing to TJ Dillashaw. And Pedro Munoz, hello, he, very good fighter. He's not laying down for anybody either. But it's not so much that he lost, although that matters. It was the way that he lost, where he had this incredible ability that he flashed against Cruz. And then he was just brawling in place against these other guys. And then he even defended it for a time against uh, following Munoz, being like, you know, I'm live or die, I'm going to go out in my shield. Or I figured ex- exactly what the words were, but it was like, you know, this is the way I want to fight. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, you're not fighting. Dude, when Kobe, Cody, excuse me, when Cody fights up to his potential, dude, he is easily one of the best bantamweights on the planet, if not the best one. And when he does it, he's not even close. And, and those last two in particular, he did not fight that way. Now, what's interesting is he had that win in 2016 over Cruz. Then he loses to Dillashaw in 2017. I think he lost to Dillashaw again in 2018. And then he lost to Munoz in, I think, 2019. I want to verify that just to be clear. But I know he's not had a ton of consistency, even as far as like competition goes in terms of the frequency of it. It's just been a weird run for him. Yeah, he lost in 2017, 2018, and 2019. 217, 227, and 235 were the respective UFC pay-per-views. So why do I find this fight so fascinating? Dude, how can you not? Cody Garbrandt is currently sitting at 28 years old. He'll be 29 in July. So he is at that point where he's, in terms of his physicality, entering his fighting prime probably, right? He... He's coming off of three losses after being on top of the bantamweight division. He had this meteoric rise and then this precipitous fall. But this time, what he's trying to do is switch things up. He went and trained with Ricardo Almeida and Mark Henry out in New Jersey to just get a different look, he said on the countdown show, to tighten things up here. Again, what you have to understand is you can have a bunch of people who are high level, but they're all going to have different styles. They're going to see different things. They're going to get the best out of you in different ways. So he's switching it up. By the way, there's this whole angle about how he said he would never leave Team Alpha Male Cody Garbrandt. He would never do all this stuff. And then he went and did it. Now, maybe the mechanisms by which he did it were different. Maybe by the point he did it, Alpha male didn't care about that stuff anymore the way they did with TJ. You know, I don't know. You can decide that for yourself. But here's what I know, and here's what makes this fight so interesting. How is it possible that this guy in 2016 was on top of the world when we were heading into 2017? He was the king of that division in an emphatic and unambiguous way. And here we are about three years later and some change, and he's at a crossroads fight. Because if he wins... And let's say he wins emphatically against Rafael Sunsau, who is a very credible challenger. Ladies and gentlemen, he is going to be back on top of that division like that. He might even, and you could say this is blasphemous, and you can even say he doesn't deserve to. Fine, say what you want. I would say if he goes in there and shines against the Sunsau, he might even leapfrog the winner of Sterling and Sanhagen from that exact same card. Remember, he's in the co-main event. They are not. They didn't even get featured on the countdown show. Now, if he if he wins and it's lackluster, you know, maybe not, right? There might be still some 
rehabilitation of, of what he had built still in order. Okay, fine. But here's the other key consideration. Forget just winning emphatically or you know winning barely. If he loses four in a row after winning in December of 2016 and does so after trying to retool everything by going to a new camp, by getting a new look against a guy like Rafael Sunsau, who is a tremendous fighter and a very difficult challenge, but himself has lost two in a row. Well, then you have a real question about what his future might be in this organization. Not to say he couldn't beat other fighters, but was he only a champion at a fleeting moment on a December night in one year? And to do it so emphatically and then never reach it again, that seems impossible to square. And yet, that is what he is up against. It is a fascinating matchup. It is a crazy time in the career of Cody Garbrandt. And I just don't detect that people feel the same way about this fight that I do, which is fine. Not everyone's going to agree. I'm just saying I just can't believe there aren't more people out there looking at this and saying, dude, this is crazy. How often do you see a moment in time when a guy is like this at 28 where the last fight he won was when he won the title? To be at a crossroads fight? After that, and of course, I'm not even bringing up the fact that he was flirting with going to flyweight and that he was supposed to come back earlier and had this uh, kidney issue. There's other layers to this story as well. And again, I, I gave brief mention, short shrift to the whole team alpha male side of things. I'm just talking about Cody, who showed to himself to be a truly brilliant talent against Dominic Cruz on December 30th, 2016. Can he get that back again, or are the troubles going to continue to compound themselves and potentially just show us he had this one moment of brilliance, really true brilliance? I mean, the wins over Mizugaki and Almeida and Mendez were nice, but I mean, true brilliance. And then he just couldn't reproduce it again. I, 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 can't, I find this to be easily, in terms of storyline and fight itself, the combo of the two that's the most interesting fight on that card. Now, in terms of the fight itself, I'm a little bit more interested in, in Sanhagen and Sterling because there's a little bit less known about them. They're still on the come up. You know, we've seen the upper bound limit, I think, or certainly a much greater version uh, of Cody Garbrandt than we've, you know, um, than even Sanhagen has had an opportunity to show. So as a fight, I like that one a little bit better. But I got to tell you, folks, I am all in on that co-main event. I am waiting with bated breath. And I can't get a read on his energy. I have no idea if going to Almeida and Henry is what he needed. I'm sure it helped. Those guys are all very, very talented coaches. Is that the thing that's going to get him over the hump? What was it that caused him to go from this to that? Like that so quickly. And then to regress. Like that's the point in your career if you're a young fighter like that, 25, 26, 27, when you're getting better fight over fight and they don't even look the same fight over fight. You see him fight in January, they look one way. You see him fight in July and they look completely different. And he was going the opposite way. What happened there? Can he stop that? Can he get it back to where he was? Dude, crazy interesting fight. Crazy interesting fight. I cannot believe there is not more buzz about that. But I got to tell you what, I am all in on it. I find it completely fascinating. And... It is what today's show is going to be primarily devoted to that fight and and have fans forgotten about Garbrandt? Have they moved on? 
We talked about it yesterday. Fans missed McGregor, but the sport moved on. If John Jones sits out, I think fans will miss him, but the sport will move on. Did it move on from Cody? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I certainly hope not. And if he wins, I definitely think they'll come running right back. But if he loses, who's to say? And those stakes, ladies and gentlemen, they are huge. They are unusual. And you pair that with a hell of a fight. Wow, man. I'm not sure what's what's to dislike there. This week on World of Basketball, Argentinian legend Luis Scola joined the show and spoke about why the Golden Generation team of the 2000s were so successful. We got a little lucky. We had the best talent we have in a whole history at the same time. And the fact that those happened on the same era, they happened to be friends, they happened to play in different positions, and they happened to have great chemistry together in the court and off the court. Those things you can't control. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. All right, our next guest, he writes in MMA on a range of topics, including but not limited to fighter pay as well as the lawsuit. I think he's a professor over at Pepperdine in economics and a great guy. I actually bumped into him, I think, the last time I was in Vegas, although I was drunk as a skunk. Uh, It is the one and only Paul Gift. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hey, Luke. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, man, for sure. I appreciate you making time. Um, By the way, you still teach at Pepperdine, yes? Yes. What, what, is, what is your view about uh, and what is Pepperdine going to do related to COVID concerns? Are they going to reopen in the fall? What's the plan? Uh, it, it's been tough right now. Uh, I'm teaching this entire summer semester online. Uh, and then as far as I understand, the plan is still a little bit up in the air for what we're doing for fall. I think for, they're looking for some version of in-person and maybe a mixture of in-person and online. I'm not 100% sure. It's still open-ended. Yeah, uh, it's going to be kind of crazy. All right, well, I guess we'll see. Now, I wanted to have you on for two reasons. One, I want to talk about this marginal revenue product uh, evaluation of uh, John Jones. We'll get to that in just a moment. Let's start, if we can. I know it's not hugely significant news. It's pretty minor. Still, let's do a bit of a recap on this fighter lawsuit. I know there was some recent movement. And again, even before we get to that, Catch us up here real quickly. Give me the cliff notes of where we are with the fighter lawsuit and the UFC. What are we waiting on exactly? How do we get to this point? So the reason what happened yesterday was interesting was basically because we've had nothing, literally nothing of substance for about the last eight months. Um, There was a set of hearings in August and September of last year, and they were hearings that the judge wanted to call because of what he, what's going on in this case is you've got, this is a judge quote, fundamentally opposing statements about basic modeling. You've got expert witnesses saying dramatically different things about what the judge thinks should be basic modeling. And that's what this case is coming down to, at least at this, this point, is how these expert witnesses modeled uh, fighter wages in their regressions. And they're saying dramatically different things. So he wanted to talk to them face to face. Here, attorneys ask some questions. He gets to ask some questions. That's what happened about eight or nine months ago. Since then, we've just been waiting, waiting for his decision on this is a hurdle that the plaintiffs have to cross. If they don't cross it, the case is effectively over. So it's critical for them. And then if they do, there will be one more called summary judgment, but we're not there yet. Um, so they need to cross this. And, and we waited eight months to get the judge's decision. He put something out 
uh, I believe it was on Sunday, but I just found it yesterday. Um, and he basically said that he is not allowing so what the UFC wanted to add some statements from Joe Silva because while they were uh, deposing Joe Silva, they got they ran into a little uh, sort of I guess they started out on a line of questioning the judge didn't like. And so he struck certain things from the record and they wanted to add it back in. And they, so he didn't do that. He's granting a lot of motions to seal. And then, you know, possibly the, the most sort of teasing statement is he's saying in my forthcoming order on the motion for class certification. So we've been waiting forever. Does forthcoming mean this Friday next week? I don't know, but at least we have some confirmation that he's working on these things. So let me ask you why this may sound stupid, but just for the to, to get it out in the open, why does it take eight months to come to a conclusion or potentially more nine, ten? Uh, so I'm not a lawyer. I don't have a great answer for you on that one. But I did used to work on these cases as part of the expert witness team for The Economist. Um, so they have a lot going on in their lives. And this is a very complex case. And he knows, he knows, he's confident that whichever side loses with his, this decision will appeal. And so I'm guessing that he wants to dot his I's and cross his T's when it comes to any appeal. And then, you know, my, my prediction once the hearings were over that we, was that we wouldn't get an uh, opinion until um, 2020. But then once you get into February and March and the pandemic hit, I'm sure that made it a lot worse. Right? Oh, right. Fair point. Yeah. So if it wasn't for that, there's a potential we could have it by now. But who the hell knows how that impacted? So just to, just to uh, clarify things, what he put out yesterday doesn't necessarily telegraph his ultimate decision. It's just uh, it's just an, it's sort of a neutral ish update. Yes. I think I'm not really in the business of reading judges on, on things like this. That what does it mean that he granted the motions to seal versus not granting them? Um, Jason Cruz from MMA Payout had predicted a long time ago that he was going to deny the UFC's request to add back in Joe Silva's testimony. So it doesn't seem like there's anything new with that. How forthcoming is forthcoming? That's the thing I think we all want to know because we want to see when this when this decision is coming in and what he says and reveals in there because he did say that he'll be basically, even though he's stealing a lot of private information, anything he needs in his order when he's describing his decision will be unsealed. Of course, he's not going to black it out. I see. Okay. Paul Giff joins us here on the Luke Thomas show. All right. With that in mind, let's jump now to this interesting article. Um, John Nash had written piggybacking off some of the work you had done something called the marginal revenue uh, prod, uh, product. And the, the idea, as I understand it here, is uh, imagine a business was trying to sell something and then they uh, brought in a, you know, uh, I don't know what the business would be. The example used here was a rock concert. And so they're selling a certain amount of tickets for the concert and it sells at X value for a certain amount of seats. Then they hire some band to show up and you can see that that band brings in an additional five to 10,000 tickets, right? Whatever it ends up being. The extra value created there is the marginal revenue product. So if I didn't state that eloquently enough, what's a better way to understand the concept there? Uh, well, this, uh, I'm trying to think about how, how I want to frame this, but it, it's the most important concept in this antitrust case that's going on right now. 
the reason, the inspiration behind writing that paper was actually um, that when the uh, both sides originally filed their class certification motions in February of 2018, over two years ago, they said that MRP is the critical concept here, and neither of them tried to measure it. So it was my inspiration for trying to measure it. Hmm. Um, it it's basically the idea of when when you're looking at what pay, let's say, quote unquote, should be. Um, in a competitive environment, workers would tend to be paid their MRP. And when businesses have monopsony power, which is, is the flip side of monopoly, you have a measure of buyer power, you're going to see wages go below that MRP. So um, the question is, what? first off, what are fighter MRPs in MMA or UFC? Uh, and that's what I set out to look at is how do these things, how do these things appear? And, and it appears that there is a very small subset of fighters that drive the vast majority of the UFC's incremental revenues. 44 fighters have generated over 75% of, by my estimations, of the UFC's incremental revenues for the period that I was looking at. John Nash, I didn't get a chance to look at his story from yesterday yet, but I'm assuming he's he's taking that information and trying to apply it to John Jones to see what, quote unquote, his economic sort of value is when it comes to additional revenue generation for, for the UFC. Okay, so that is fascinating to me that both sides agreed that that was the key measuring stick, and yet none of them went through the process of trying to figure that out. How can that be? Why did they both agree it played a central role and then didn't map out the math? I, I honestly don't have a good answer for you. I mean, one possibility is they're relying on academic papers and no academic had done it yet, um, which, again, was, was part of my interest in doing it. Um, I would have thought they would have at least taken a stab at it. Uh, exactly why they didn't do that, I don't know. Um, but when it came to, uh, the plaintiff side, I mean, they've been on this wage share argument for a long time, so I'm not sure it's something that they would look at. They've been focused on, they think they have a stronger argument by saying that the UFC is suppressing the percentage of, of pay that they pay their fighters as opposed to the absolute level. Right. So here, here's the question I think a lot of fans might have. Let's just say fighter X we all agree has an MRP uh, over the course of several years of fighting of a hundred million dollars. Does that mean they should be paid a hundred million or that they should get a percentage of that 100 million? It doesn't necessarily mean they should be paid that it, it, the idea is if you had an extremely competitive market, that's the amount they would end up getting paid. That, that's the theoretical idea behind it. When, when uh, uh, buyers for their services compete, they would bid that up to what to the incremental revenue that fighter drives, right? And, and I mean, this is obviously isn't good. this is in theory world, so it's not going to be perfect every case in the real world. But if you have that measure of MRP, you can tend to look at what people are actually being compensated relative to that. And most importantly, in this lawsuit, is the plaintiffs are saying that the UFC got a lot more monopsony power from, let's say, the 2010 time period to around 2015-2016 time period. They're saying that this thing called their foreclosure share shot up, which is a measure of their monopsony power. So what you should be seeing is that fighter pay goes down. Now, what you, you, you actually don't see that. It doesn't go down. So that's why they sort of pivoted to this 
fighter's share, right? The percentage of revenues they got has been going down. But what you would want to look at ideally is what's happening to pay relative to MRP as, as a company's buying power grows, what we'll call their monopsony power. Is there a sense of what, uh, has anyone done any of this academic work, let's say with baseball players or teams to see A, what their MRP might be, and then B, what the total share of the MRP is that they get? I mean, to what extent have these evaluations been done in other sports arenas, so to speak? Oh, it's been done a lot. It's been done a lot. Um, I, I don't necessarily recall an analysis looking to see as someone's sort of anti-competitively obtained more monopsony power, what happens to pay, but, but what they'll look at is they'll look at, okay, you're a, you're a baseball player who's subject to arbitration, so you have more restrictions on you versus an unrestricted free agent. What happens to your pay relative to your MRP in those situations, right? And they generally find that the fewer restrictions that you have on you from a contractual perspective, the bigger the percentage of your MRP that you get, even though it's not always at 100%, right? But they'll see, they'll see that it goes up. I see. Okay, so there is some precedent for that. Is there any other kind of case that um, the average listener here might have that they can wrap their head around, sort of famously, where MRP, whether it's sports or, I don't know, tech or something else, where it had a really profound effect in changing how compensation happened for an aggrieved party? How compensation happens for an aggrieved party? Right, I'm so that... Like the idea would be that somebody went through, like what you did, went through the trouble of measuring this uh, and then used it as a mechanism to boost wages. Is there any kind of historical precedent for that um, in a, any kind of famous way that people could understand? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, what's famous in my world isn't necessarily going to be famous in the regular <laughs> world. But the case that keeps coming up over and over again in the UFC antitrust lawsuit is this is this high-tech litigation, which was basically an allegation of collusion between Google and Apple and others to suppress uh, the pay uh, of tech employees uh, by basically doing a sort of a non-compete. We won't try to poach each other's workers. Um, and so that keeps coming up over and over and over again in this lawsuit. And the basic idea, it's a little bit different, though, because that was supposedly a cartel where you're, you, you are enhancing your power by essentially becoming a cartel and then pay decline from what it otherwise would have been, right? And right. so that's one that, that is a big part of this case because what, what, people, what the plaintiffs are saying is the fighters are the product. And when you go into the Apple and Google world, the, the, uh, uh, the developers aren't the product, right? And, and then the UFC has an, has an argument about that as well. But that's the world we're in. It's very academic right now. It's very, what I've said over and over again, very nerdy right now. People always want to talk about, um, you know, maybe what's going on with John Jones and the UFC right now, or um, just the UFC's market share, or how big of a company they seem to be in the MMA space. But what it all comes down to, it doesn't come down to any of that. It all comes down to the judge right now is deciding whether he thinks the plaintiffs are the ones doing things weird. So whether he thinks Hal Singer, the plaintiff's primary expert witness, has taken too many liberties with his modeling and economic principles, or whether parts of his work are, and I'm quoting now, so absurd that they don't meet the standard he needs to certify it as a class action. So that's what he's trying to decide. It's a lot of academic issues right now. 
Um, the anecdotes will come in later, especially in trial. But right now, he's working through a lot of the technical regression academic stuff. I see. Uh, let me just ask this in a sort of a, a, a broader way. Again, and I don't economists will probably have uh, a range of opinions on any kind of question. But if I made you king for a day, if I had the power to make you king for a day, uh, Paul, and you wanted to solve the issue of fighter pay, what would be your preferred solution? I think said over and over again, I would start with having fighters be employees and unionized. I would start there. Is it the end answer? No. Um, but enhancing your bargaining power down the line, I think would do a lot for you. Um, I'm not as big a fan of kind of boxifying the sport. Uh, that's just me personally, but I would start with them trying to enhance their bargaining power from over what they have now as independent contractors. That's where I would start. Uh, all right. You know what? It's, it's, it's a hell of an interesting time. Well, Paul, when there is some movement on this, we'd love to get you back on and give us your expert opinion and help us understand it better. Uh, but every time you come on, I certainly feel that way just the same. Uh, best of luck with the uh, summer semester. Stay safe, and we really appreciate your insight here on the show. Thank you. So I guess I'll see you uh, forthcoming then. Yes, yes, you certainly will. We'll have Paul Gift on in a forthcoming manner. Should be really good. WWE legend, The Undertaker. I have tried my hardest to protect kayfabe. Honestly, just within the last couple of years, I mean, I would cringe when I would hear people, you know, like we're doing now, like talking openly about behind the scenes stuff. It would just like, I'd grit my teeth and this, I think I was the real last holdout to, to kayfabe. Listen to Busted Open's interview with WWE legend, The Undertaker, on demand now via the SiriusXM app. Just search Busted Open Interviews, now free for most subscribers. Mail time. Mail time. Mail here. Have a question about MMA, sports, entertainment, or life in general? If people just came to me for the answers, the world would be a better place. Email Luke at LukeThomasShow at gmail.com and get the answers to all those burning questions during the Luke Thomas Show Midweek Mailbag. All right, time now for the TLTS Midweek Mailbag. You can contribute at any point during your week, whenever the mood strikes you. The mailbag is always open for you, so just do that. LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. And whatever you want to get to is whatever we'll get to. Without further ado, Cobb, uh, what do we have in store for today's segment? Mail, motherfucker. All right, well, we'll start off with Miguel from Florida, who says, hey, Luke. Uh, everyone is talking about Colby, Masvidal, now Burns challenging for the welterweight title against Kamaru, but few are mentioning Leon Edwards, who I think yeah, I knew I knew where that was headed. <laughs> I think has a much better chance than Masvidal and Kobe to beat Kamaru. Burns undoubtedly will beat anyone right now at welterweight. He's a freight train coming. So, do you think Edwards is being overlooked, and who should he fight next, Colby or Masvidal? I, I swear to God, it's as if people don't know that they already fought Cobb. Have you seen their first fight? Uh, if I did, I don't remember it. So I'm going to say right. no. <laughs> right. I mean, Kamaru won easily. 
it was not at all competitive. Now, that's not to say that the second time can't be different or wouldn't be different or, you know, potentially a lot closer. In fact, I suspect that it would be, right? I mean, Kamaru has gotten way better, but Leon Edwards has gotten way, way better relative to his own, um, you know, that, that performance on that night. But Kamaru handled him like it was nothing. So, got to be honest with you, I don't really believe that. And the way in which... The, the argument that I am very sympathetic to is that Burns essentially took Leon Edwards' opportunity against Woodley to elevate himself. I think that part is very clearly true, right? I do think that Leon Edwards would have beaten Woodley had they fought at UFC London in March. Um, and I think he'd be the top contender, you know, putting his name out there for a potential opportunity against Kamaru again. But they already fought and Kamaru smashed him. So... Again, you, you'd, be, you'd be banking on the idea that next time would be different, which is fine. I think it's a completely fair, totally reasonable argument. I don't really take a whole lot of issue with it except to say that's not nearly as interesting to me as Gilbert Burns is his first time. And given that Gilbert Burns is a significant threat on the ground, which means it'll be, they'll be forced to stand probably a lot more, if not entirely. I sort of like Gilbert's not chances to win outright, but I don't know, man. That seems very competitive to me. Very competitive. So, with that in mind, um, I take Leon Edwards seriously. Leon might be able to beat Gilbert, but he is not well-suited, it has shown, to beat Kamaru. So, that's what I think of that. Next. Answer my question! All right, this comes from Jeff from Winnipeg. Got a, got a two for here. A bit of a deep first question, but uh, we have discussed this in the past on the show. So, Jeff says, uh, I've noticed a tremendous amount of vitriol Hurled towards John Jones, Tyron Woodley, and Stylebender in the last few days. I'm oh, I wonder. I wonder what the connection could be, Cobb. Well, that's that's part of the question. So, example: Jones' video of stopping vandalism being fake. People expecting Tyron to use George Floyd as an excuse for his loss, and is he taking fan abuse for attending a BLM protest? Right. Uh, I'm no fan of Jones. DC is my favorite fighter. Never been too high on Tyron, but I respect it. But but respect his accomplishments. Okay. I love Stylebender. My right. question is, does MMA fandom in general have a persistent racism problem? Yes. Everyone loves a, everyone <laughs> loves a brash Connor or Chael, but it seems if a fighter is black, the opposite is true. What do you think? Yeah. No, it's uh, it's quite obvious that it does. Um, now, again, you know, are they all hooded knights, uh, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails through the homes of African-Americans windows? No, I don't. You know, let's be clear when we say racism, what we mean here exactly. There are degrees to it. I'm not here to say that what we have is not pernicious and a problem, but you know, I'm not accusing people of joining uh, white nationalist groups. Here, here's what I'm trying to get across to folks. There, look, let's just be honest about it. And this is going to piss people off, and I don't care. If this makes you mad, then it makes you mad. You could do what you want with it. There is a lot of the MMA community that... Oh, let me Actually, let's back up one more step. The overwhelming majority of the MMA community, fans, fighters, coaches promoters, whatever, up and down PR is white. Okay. Overwhelmingly. So to the point where I have been to numerous boxing events in this country that were predominantly, if not exclusively black, I have been to numerous, uh, boxing events that were predominantly, if not nearly exclusively, uh, Latinos in the audience. I have never, ever even seen anything approximating that in an MMA contest ever. I have been to a fight between Trevor Prangley and Yuki Kondo Trevor Prangley is South African, and the crowd was chanting USA for him. Okay? People are going to deny that this is a real thing, but it is a real thing. 
So here is my point. There are the the MMA community is overwhelmingly white. They have resisted any kind of conversation about race and what role it plays in the sport. Again, I'm not even saying condemnation per se, just even a conversation. I have defended John in the past related to these concerns. It pissed off everybody in the free world. People accused me of all manner of uh, race crimes to my own race. That is a real thing that has been done to me. You can actually look it up on YouTube. And the reality is there are a lot of people in this community, white ones, who have very, very fragile identities. And they can't even fathom the idea um, that that these kinds of topics should be discussed, not merely in sports, but at all. Um, these are people who, uh, you know, it's not even that they adopt a certain kind of thinking that's different than mine, but that they do it at the lowest common denominator. I mean, the thought leaders that some of these people go to true charlatans utterly bereft of any um not really academic value because they're not academics but scholarly value whatsoever in the in these worldviews and totally bankrupt and the, the the reality is you now have many more prominent unapologetic young african-american male champions and fighters who have a platform they're not going to cater to your fragility and they're going to say things that you may or may not like the question is how you want to respond to it um, you know, the fan base and other parts of the community will deny until their dying breath that there is any kind of an issue, except it is an issue when people like Stylebender or Jones or Woodley or whoever adopt a kind of posture where they want to fo put forward this conversation or express an identity that doesn't conform to, um, you know, outmoded versions of what black male identity should be for uh, white fragile audiences. This is the problem. And I'll be, I'll get hate mail for this top for this answer too. I do not care about your fragility. I want you all to understand that. And if you're not fragile out there, then you know, I'm not talking to you. So don't even have to worry about it. Right? So yes, does it have a racism problem without a shadow of a doubt that the people who have the problem are cognizant of it? Bit of a different problem that I'm not sure how you figure that part out. Next message. Well, there was a second part of this question that I'll give you. He had, okay, you know, it's just Jeff from Winnipeg. He's got to get a hockey question in. So, uh, given the NHL, uh, the proposed NHL playoff bracket, do you feel first round buys will hurt those teams due to rust? I personally think it will, which will be compounded by the crappy ice that will be inevitable at all games taking place in just two hub cities. Uh, I think we may be, a, may be in for the worst hockey product in years. We'd love to hear your opinion on the matter. Yeah, I mean, I'm of two different minds, dude. I think sometimes that rust completely implodes a team, and I think sometimes it's just what the doctor ordered. I'm not one of these big believers that, uh, I mean, it's been a significant time off, right? Two months. Um, but I bet a lot of injuries got healed. Uh, you know, who the hell knows about all the different kinds of things these guys were struggling with. Hockey is a brutal, brutal grind. So, you know, I suspect that absolutely people who had the hot hand before everything got crushed are going to have a hard time restarting. And I suspect there'll be some opposite versions of that. Now, whether everyone will be, you know, firing on all cylinders with their best version of hockey in general, I tend to think that that's probably not true at scale. But the idea that people just can't get out of first or second gear, some won't be able to. Some will be just fine, again, relative to the competition that they face. So there you go. Next. All right, this comes from Paul in Los Angeles. He thinks that we misunderstood a question we got last week. All right. So uh, you remember the question that we had from the gentleman who was asking about the weight classes? And he asked us, I followed up with why is bantamweight heavier than uh, featherweight? Yeah. 
right. but it's not lighter than. Well, this this was Paul in Los Angeles' take on the question. So he okay. said, someone asked a strange question regarding bantamweight, featherweight earlier, and you guys answered in a way that compared the divisions to boxing. I think the question was actually a lot more simple than that and more about linguistics. Uh, a bantam is a chicken, so why is chicken weight lighter than featherweight when a chicken is heavier than a feather? Might be wrong, but that was my take on the question. Okay, hold on. I want to see if that's true. Bantam. A chicken of a small breed, the male of which is noted for its aggression. Uh, that's interesting. I don't know. If that, oh, you know what? That's a fair correction. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that would be. Um, I think the answer is we just do whatever the hell we want in MMA. <laughs> really? <laughs> we name things. Yeah. Like why is feather below light? I mean, wouldn't light be like could be anything, you know, like, um, yeah, I don't know. That's a great, that's a great question. Dude. I mean, I don't know. Just learn the names. Why are you digging into the details? Why are you being so pedantic about this? Just learn the goddamn names. I didn't look, I didn't name them. And you should be glad about something out there donks, because I had to do some research for this, uh, show I do on Showtime Extreme for Strike Force Classics. Cobb, I had to watch some old women's fights. Not that old, by the way, 2010. And I watched a fight with uh, Sarah Kaufman and, um, God, what was her name? Um, some Japanese fighter, I forget her name. She, um, the fight was contested at welterweight. And you're like, wait a second, welterweight. It used to be the case that the women had the same names in the same order. In other words, it would go straw, fly, bantam, feather, light, welter, blah, blah, blah. But they had different number bracketings. So back then, 135 for women was welterweight. So you would have a whole series of weight classes for men and a whole series of weight classes for women with the same name but different number value. They, they standardized it, thank Lord Jesus, I'm not sure how long ago, but imagine if we had that. So you would have three different systems to learn. Boxing system, because I mean, who's really watching women's boxing? Men's MMA and then women's MMA, but they've standardized it across all of MMA. So thank the Lord God, we don't have to pay attention. But yeah, dude, it used to, however bad it is, used to be a lot worse, donks. So keep that in mind. Uh, all right, next. Answer my question! All right, this comes from Diana, who's uh, referencing our conversation on Friday with the, uh, we were having a discussion about the female weight class, or the female divisions and whether or not, you know, the scantily clad Instagram posts hurt the sport. Ah, uh, yes. So uh, she was listening late. She'd sent this late Friday after that show finished, but she said, I'm listening to this conversation late. I wish I could have called in. Caller Nick is so off base saying it is up to women to support women's sports. Both male and female people support exciting sports. As far as does it hurt MMA, I don't think so at all. And from a female fight fan, I thoroughly enjoy the pictures of male fighters with their shirts off posing. Video is even better. Uh, that, however, would never be a topic. I agree it all comes down to the cage. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, though, I mean, could you imagine, this is the argument I made last time, Macy's claim was, a fa was her claim was one about the reality we're living in, which is that these kinds of things do damage. Right. And um, if that is true, it's hard to know where the evidence is for it. Right. At the way things currently are, you could make the case we'd be further along without it. But I tend to think that that's probably not true. 
but could I imagine a world where the men's side of the game was, you know, sort of the more serious side and that the women's side ended up being something of a sideshow? Folks, that's the way it kind of used to be where there were hardly any weight classes. Remember, they had different names. They fought for three minutes. You cannot imagine how many times you'd watch a card and it would be if they were even on it. Remember, UFC didn't even want to have them. They only did it because of strike force, to be honest with you. Um, and and there would be catch weights all the time. They wouldn't even have normal weight classes. Folks take Invicta for granted. What Invicta did was noble and wise and extremely important. It's not that Invicta has created a bunch of superstars that the UFC could just sign, although it has been a really important pipeline for talent that they could groom. That part is true, clearly. They've done a phenomenal job in that. But the key insight that Shannon Knapp had is so simple and yet was so missing when she did it, which is we should just govern women's MMA like we do men's five, five minute rounds. And that was already instituted by the time that she had gotten there. But, you know, that was a battle in and of itself. All the weight classes should be the, the same. You know, we'll do catch weights on occasion in the same way that the men's divisions might have them for, you know, a late miss or something like that. But you're going to have a weight class. We're going to groom inside that weight class. We're going to build these divisions. And that's what it's going to be. We're going to make women's MMA look like men's. They did not. I mean, however much you think the distance is between them now, it used to be significantly worse. So I can envision a world where people be like, you know, one side is legit and one side is a sideshow. I, I kind of understand that. It's just that the claims that Macy is making, I think they come from a good place. Clearly, she's concerned. I just don't know what the evidence is. I can't seem to find where it's true that what she is saying shows up in the reality of things. It, I don't, I don't see it. So that's the only part. But to be clear, you know, to get women's MMA where it is today, people had to do serious things to it. They had to treat it like it was not being treated. So that's not exactly what Macy is talking about. Um, People were building more like the infrastructure of it rather than the, the marketing side. But I think both of them maybe even fit together, right? You had to build the infrastructure, and then once it's there, sort of the marketing efforts can then kick in. What do we have next? Mail, motherfucker. All right, considering we just talked to Paul Gift, I think some of these questions are relevant. And I feel like we get one of these a month. So this comes from Michael, who says, Hey, Luke, as an individual, I am personally willing to pay more for a pay-per-view, but only if the fighters get a cut of it. Is there a way to hold Dana White more accountable for fighters for getting fighters more pay? Because this is beyond ridiculous. DC openly said he got more for moving to heavyweight, so why can't Jones? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the terms were of that deal. Maybe I think they were needing him to do a solid, and um, as part of the Ultimate Fighter, and there might have been a new contract, and so there could have been an, a bump. I, you know, I don't think. I don't think he was holding out. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say much more than that, I, I, except to say, um, typically, this is the kind of thing they don't reward. So what the terms were that DC benefited from that enabled him to get more money, I don't know. Of course, it's a good thing. I would never say him getting more money is a bad thing. Uh, Cobb, I've, I've noodled this one. Like, what can a fan do to get them to, you know, show their displeasure for fighter pay. And I really don't know the answer to that. I mean, you can say a mass boycott, but that is so, you know, 
I mean, is that is that even remotely realistic? I, I guess the answer is you could vote with your dollars, but you know, if you don't buy pay per view, they get even less. Um, I don't know that it's really up to the fans. Cobb, what do you think? Is there re- I, this one? I throw my hands in the air a, a little bit. I don't know. Like I said, I think like we get this question once a month, and we both really don't know what you can do. I mean, I guess you could always boycott, but unless it's a massive boycott, I don't think the UFC is going to feel it in their pockets. Yeah, and even then, it's not like if the fighters weren't working in conjunction with the fans, what good would that do, right? I mean, because it would all have to be like a coordinated effort to extract demands or concessions, I should say, while you're making demands. So I don't even know. I don't know what the answer is there, to be quite candid with you. Um, I don't think there's a lot of good ones. Uh, even if even if you boycotted, it wouldn't like it couldn't just be a one-off. You'd have to continuously do this, no matter how good the fight card is. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know if you can get that kind of fan support, like card over card. I just don't think you can yeah. do it. Yeah, I think this really—it's up to the fighters. The fighters want everyone else to do it for them. Managers, media, you know. And by the way, Cobb, can I say something? To me, it is so funny that the MMA media got absolutely blasted for their COVID takes. And you can hate them and you can like them, whatever you thought. And, you know, oh, MMA media, they really don't care about the fighters. They have gone out of their way in the last two weeks. It's been a long history of this to talk about fighter pay. And the only people resisting are certain fans. And it's like, it's like, so wait, you wanted to blast us for our COVID takes. Again, whatever merit you want to ascribe to them or lack thereof. But you now won't turn around and say thanks for the extended coverage on fighter pay, really? Okay, okay, fellas, I see. I see what the the real issue is here. All right, uh, all right. Next. Answer my question. All right, this comes from Matan, who uh, got a, a few questions here related to John Jones. We can just run through them one by one. Uh, so, John Jones as a champion is getting pay per view points, correct? Yes. So depending on his actual con- contractual PPV split, you can put a number as to how many pay-per-view buys he needs to sell in order to get Wilder money. Is he trying to negotiate his pay-per-view points or guaranteed money? Uh, I don't know what mechanism he has argued, right? Because understand the way it works is it's tiered. You get X amount for all the sales from zero to, let's say, 300,000 buys. Then you get 2x for all the sales uh, from 301,000 or whatever it is to 600,000. Then you get another one up to a million. Then you get more beyond a million. So as you reach each new tier of sales, each subsequent buy at that point uh, is worth more than the last. So I don't know if you're trying to change what the math is there or if he wants an upfront guarantee. I don't know that he's made that argument. I, uh, so I, I couldn't answer that part. All right. Well, part two to this question: Does John have any other options aside from sitting out? Like, he could, can he can he go do boxing, bare knuckle, professional wrestling, or is he bound to the UFC unless they release him? Right. I mean, this is the reason why you never see fighters in their prime have multiple bidders go and look for him, right? Because these contracts uh, run this way, or at least it's very very rare anyway that you see someone in their prime um, have multiple bidders look after them. No, he cannot. I mean, okay. So in theory, he could, assuming the UFC allowed it. But the way their contracts work is they're their sole promoter. They're their sole promoter for anything combat sports, whether that's professional wrestling, which is not a sport, but is written into the language, whether that's boxing, whether it's kickboxing. And they don't tend to enforce it for jiu-jitsu. They kind of tend to just let it rock, um, which, you know, makes sense. It's not that big a deal. But for anything where, like, strikes are thrown, 
they you have to get their explicit approval. And, uh, you know, they did it for Connor against Floyd. Okay, you know, certainly there's a precedent for it, but I think we can all agree that was a fairly unique circumstance, the idea that it might happen again across the board. You know, there's all this talks about, like, Dillian White fighting Francis Ngannou. Dana has showed less than zero interest in that. So, no, he cannot. This is the short and answer. Last, and last part to this uh, email. Dana said that John could be the LeBron James of, of MMA. As I'm currently watching The Last Dance, it made me think of what the, what the NBA and the world would be like if they told Michael Jordan he's asking for too much money, and if he prefers to, prefers to retire, he should do so. Can you imagine such a thing? Oh, do they Can you get, imagine? They, they, they would get destroyed for that. Well, here's the thing. It wouldn't happen. So, like, so here's how it would go, Cobb. You know this as well as I do. If, if the Bulls were like, we're not paying you this, uh... Any other team in that league would have sold their mother on the street for crack to get enough money to sign Michael, right? <laughs> Pardon me. There, there would be this process by which his services would essentially be bid upon um, to secure them. I mean, I don't even know how much he made for the Wizards, but I'm sure they paid a stupid amount of money for the three seasons he was here in D.C. So, you know... If if one of the teams wanted to cry poor and say, yeah, if you want this money, you can just retire. The other teams would be like, okay, you stupid idiot. We'll just sign Michael Jordan. The problem is John can't go and chop himself that way. There's no bidding process that he's currently able to 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 do. And uh, and you can say, well, that's you know, if you're locked into a contract, they can't get you out of it. But then they can always do that, right? Because look at like what Anthony Davis did, sort of demanding a trade. And then the Lakers end up you know, spending an extraordinary amount to bring him over to pair him up with LeBron. And then the Pelicans end up getting you know, Zion in the draft. Like There's all kinds of things that they can do. So someone else would just bid for his services. It's just that that mechanism doesn't exist in MMA. Now, that's where the Ali Act would come in. It would create certain contracts in such a way where you'd get much more open bidding for services for A-list fighters like this. Um, it'd come with other costs and things that you may not like, but that part certainly would be a lot better in terms of fighter pay. But it's not what we have. Next. All right, if you ever want to contribute to the TLTS Midweek Mailbag, you certainly may. Luke Thomas Show at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.